Welcome to the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast brought to you by Break of Day Capital. The show focuses on educating syndicators and apartment owners on how to build systems and manage their properties more efficiently to become a best-in-class operator. 100% straight talk. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, I have my good friend, Andrew Wessling. Andrew was on episode 90 back in January when the lending environment was quite different. He's an associate director of capital markets at Walker & Dunlop, based here in Los Angeles. Andrew is responsible for new loan originations and closings for multifamily and commercial properties nationwide. Throughout his career, Andrew has underwritten and closed more than $1.5 billion in equity financing for properties across the country. Welcome, Andrew. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure, Gary. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. So as you mentioned, Walker Dunlop, we are a national commercial real estate investment sales and finance firm. We are the largest provider of capital to the multifamily industry. A big part of that is our agency lending platform. We're the largest Fannie Mae lender in the country. We have been eight out of the last 10 years. We are, as I recall, the third largest Freddie Mac lender in the country and the third largest HUD lender in the country. So a big part of our investment sales and financing portfolio is multifamily. And the rest, the other 50% roughly is spread across all other asset classes. And so my team here based in Los Angeles, we work on all asset classes, all stages of projects, everything from acquisition, refinance, renovation, and construction of commercial real estate assets across all asset classes across the great nation. So, Well, awesome. Great to have you here. It's great partnering with you on a bunch of deals and your wealth of knowledge. So Let's talk, surprise, surprise, about the uh, the current lending environment. Who thought we'd be here starting right. in January, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously, rates have dramatically gone up. Proceeds have gone down. And some lenders stopped lending. You know, jump in, kind of let us know what you're seeing, you know, for borrowers looking for debt these days. Yeah. I always look for different data sources. And a good one is an annual survey that's produced by one of our colleague firms, CBRE. And they look at a whole host of loan originations, both both on their balance sheet and what they're brokering. Our originations tend to mirror what they're seeing. Overall, as you mentioned, loan to value has come down. One year ago today, the average loan to value on a, on a uh, commercial real estate origination was 65%, just under 64.9. Today, it's just under 60%. And so that's a big difference. 
as you know, as you're raising uh, equity capital too, to bridge that gap. And so what we're finding is that folks that were doing a lot of deals, a lot of acquisitions and raising capital, now they're having to go back to their investors, raise more as the level of debt has come down. But one thing that hasn't changed is the expectation of the equity investor. And so the hard part now is you need to find a property that pencils to the return requirements of your equity investor, but you have less debt to do that. And so because of that, transaction volume has definitely slowed. We are seeing people make acquisitions, but it tends to be 1031 exchange, meaning that they have to transact within a certain amount of time. And so it'll be interesting to see you know, over the next three to six months as those 1031 exchange sales that hit the market over the last couple of months are transacting, you know, how many more continue to be sellers and have to transact and whether or not we get any relief in the acquisition market. So on the flip side, on the refinance market, it's twofold. One is folks over the last couple of years have been spoiled with very low interest rates. And so they've done a nice job positioning their existing properties. And so they've likely pulled some cash out. They've put long-term fixed rate debt on their stabilized properties, and they're just sort of sitting on these. And so they have real no incentive to transact. They could sell, but are they going to get the price that they may have hoped? And they have no reason to refinance because rates are now higher and they probably can't get as much proceeds as they once wanted. So a lot of folks are just sitting on their existing assets and just collecting the cash flow. The flip side of that are people who have transitional assets and maybe have taken on transitional debt. And this is a very interesting part of the commercial real estate debt market because we've had historically low rates, but if you're on a floating rate loan, those rates have now gone way up. A lot of people have bought interest rate caps, which is protecting them, which is great. But the question becomes, can they execute on their business plan? And can they either refinance or sell at the levels that they thought they could going into the project at the beginning? And so what we're seeing is some folks maybe needing rescue capital, some people needing more time, some people maybe just selling out early or maybe not at the top that they had performed. And so that'll be a very interesting question again over the next call it six to 12 months is where do some of those projects shake out and what kind of capital is available for sponsors who want to come in and either recapitalize those projects or just folks that are just fire selling them to get out of them? Yeah, I think there's a lot of sponsors out there that are excited about this kind of opportunity and we'll see how much it comes about. But hey, I've had a couple of brokers reach out for you know one deal that they need to get out because of the industry is killing the seller. So, but not a lot yet. We'll see how that plays out. That's a good point because you know I keep hearing this you know sort of across the industry and on panels it's it's doom and gloom and we're going into a recession. If you look at the fundamentals of commercial real estate, they're excellent. They're about as strong as they've ever been. Occupancy is higher than it's ever been. Cash flow is great, right? We have no longer all of the pandemic issued moratoriums. Most of those have come to a close. And so back rent has been paid. The consumer balance sheet is still fairly strong. And so what we're seeing now is landlords who have positioned themselves well with you know, low leverage and fixed rate debt, their assets are performing better than I think any alternative asset out there. And as I'm looking as a buyer, my wife and I, you know, we're looking at what else could we invest in? We could invest in stocks and bonds. We could invest in crypto. We could sit in cash. But all of those have been losers. All of the gains in the stock market through the pandemic have essentially been wiped out today. Crypto has clearly defined itself as a correlated asset, right, with its own volatility. And cash is losing out to inflation. And so as I look at commercial real estate just as an asset class overall, I'm A, excited to be an owner of commercial real estate over the last five years because I probably outperformed every other asset class out there. 
with not just on cash flow and returns, but also with tax advantages. But looking forward, I see a rocky picture for most other investments. And I think there's opportunity, like you said, in commercial real estate. Now, will it be you know every apartment building on the block on sale? No. But I do think as there always is, there's divorce and business partnership collapse and you know certain situations that require someone to come in and to buy a property at a good basis. And yes, the debt may not be as favorable as it has been, but assuming that the expectations from sellers come down and prices come down accordingly, I'm looking at commercial real estate as a good bank over the next few years as a solid investment, especially compared to alternatives. Absolutely. Yeah. We just closed on a deal recently that we got, you know, 20, 25% discount on a property. You know, not all properties are discounted well these days, but there are properties to be found. It'll be interesting come Q1, you know, what kind of deals are out there on the market. And, you know, I had breakfast with a couple of brokers, dinner with a broker this past week, and, you know, they've got really nothing right now and kind of waiting to see the next few months. You know, they went from such a flurry of activity to like nothing going on at all. Yeah, without a doubt. It's a bit of a waiting game. But one thing that we should be talking about, I think, is replacement value. It's always been a fundamental. And you know, going back to your acquisition, you make your money on the buy in this business, right? It's the same thing in the stock market. You buy low, you sell high. It's the same thing in real estate. You make your money on the buy. And the gravy is the renovations and the additional cash flow and the cap rate compression and all of that. But ultimately, if you look back at every acquisition where people did well on, they can say, you know what? I bought that at the right time or at the right basis, which is most important. And I think that's going to be, you know, you have to come back and look at some of the fundamentals again, which over the last few years, maybe you haven't, or maybe they've gotten out of whack is probably a better way to put it, right? I think what we've seen, the average cap rate, the average value, and as dictated by sales, have come down almost 14% in most asset classes. Multifamily and industrial came down 17%, I think office 14 and retail 13, which tells me that the valuations had gotten too high, right? And so as we're looking at it now, one thing we weren't talking about was, you know, we're buying units at X per unit, but what was the replacement cost of those, right? And it didn't really matter because the debt was so cheap, you could still make a deal work or pencil because rent growth was going to continue. And maybe the barriers of entry were good in a certain market, whatever it may be. Now, as we're looking at the flip side, I'd like to call people back to replacement value. If you can find basis in a property below replacement value on an existing that still maybe has some rental upside, that is a huge win. Right. I mean, talk about just protecting your barriers to entry. No one can build the same asset and you're buying it at below what that replacement value is. That could be a huge opportunity for people to make a lot of money in the long term by buying right over the next 12, 18, 24 months and just being a holder long term, as opposed to just looking at a three to five year business plan where they're pushing rents and selling. So I have people that ask me sometimes, how do you define or how do you come up with the replacement cost? Well, how do you guys come up with that replacement cost? Yeah, we talk to builders and developers, right? And so we're looking at the cost of materials, the cost of land, right? And so all of that adds up, right? To If you're going to build ground up a, a brand new construction garden style multifamily, you got to buy the dirt, you got to buy the lumber, you got to pay for the labor, you got to buy the drywall. 
all of that adds up and you can build for, you know, X per mount per foot in certain markets. And so we kind of keep tabs of that as an institution because we have a lot of clients who are building in those markets, but it's really talking to the people who are boots on the ground and can give you those types of estimates. It's the general contractors or the developers who are doing it. There's a good sense of sort of what can be built for what. Now, of course, that got skewed in the pandemic because of the supply chain issues. But as things start to normalize and have come down, you can really sort of get back to the baseline of what it does take to build in a certain market. Let's talk about loans value. So I know, you know, on one of our deals, we came up with some mes debt that really helped us, you know, get higher in the cap stack. I know a lot of people are getting into the pref market. You know, what are you seeing with mes and pref these days? Yeah, I think it's going to be a big market for lenders to play in, especially some lenders who are leveraged themselves because they need to hit certain returns, just like us as investors, right? And so the senior debt market has become so squeezed on their margins that they're no longer making the yields. And so a lot of those folks have either exited or fully scaled back on transitional bridge rate lending. And so they've actually transitioned into MES and PREF products because they're taking on additional risk higher up the capital stack. And in exchange, they're getting compensated for it. And so as senior lenders continue to compress their loan to values and loan to costs, that gap either needs to be filled by common equity or some sort of subordinate debt product, right? Like a MES or a PREF. And look, the cost of common equity hasn't come down. The expectations of of investors like you and and me, we still want to see the same returns that we've enjoyed over the last 10 years, five years. And so basically taking MES or PREF and looking at it as cheap equity is the right way to do it. And so as long as you're not over leveraging the entire project with additional subordinate debt, that's going to be a really nice way for investors and for operators to still achieve the leverage they need. And yes, it's going to cost a little bit more money, but it's cheaper than bringing in additional equity. On one of our deals, that was a home run. We had PREF equity in there with a cap at 12%. So it just supercharged our returns to everyone involved. It was fantastic. It's a great tool when used correctly. And I think right now is the time where that market has become, I wouldn't say overcrowded, but it's definitely becoming more competitive than it has been. And so as an operator and as a borrower, you actually have a little bit of leveraging power in that market to find good deals. You know, We're doing a lot of MES and PREF behind our agency deals, even on stabilized, because even on a stabilized asset, maybe you're coming up to 60% LTV max because you're limited by your debt service coverage ratio. And so, but borrowers still want more leverage. And so layering in a MES or a PREF and that market has become so competitive because the hard pay is only about 4%. Now the total cost of the debt is, you know, 11%, something like that. So there's an accrue factor, but they feel good over the long-term hold that they'll be either be able to refinance it out or sell and wipe it all out with the gains of the appreciation and the rent growth. So it's a good product. One other product I want to talk about is affordable housing. And I know we've talked about, you're seeing going to see a lot more in the future. Why don't you talk about affordable housing real quick? Yeah. So affordable housing to me is the future, especially of the agency business model. Fannie and Freddie for years were giving green rewards, right? So if you were to improve a property by putting in LED lighting and low flow toilets and conserving water, we would reward you by giving you 30 bips off your interest rate. And that's really compelling when you're looking at, especially at larger loans. 
The green rewards program is slowly dwindled now, but the new flavor has become affordable housing. And that's what Fannie and Freddie are really dialed in at. And so they're looking for properties either with true low-income housing tax credits that run with the property or properties that are located in high-cost areas but have low rents compared to their competitors and their peers. And so we look at what the rents are as a a percentage of the AMI, the average median income. And if a property qualifies, there's different tier levels for percentage of units at percentage of AMI. We give substantial discounts on the debt to acquire, renovate, and hold and operate those properties. So in addition to the agencies, you also have folks like banks who are looking for CRE credits, which is not commercial real estate, but community reinvestment. And so that's a big focus for banks always. And so they're looking for affordable products to get behind and support where they can, again, give incentives to developers, owners, and operators to go in and buy these types of projects. And so as I look at it long-term, the other thing that's, that's happened, which is very interesting, is that rent growth has been so strong in so many markets. You can actually go into a market now like a Nashville or an Atlanta or Austin, right? These super hot markets that have experienced wild rent growth. And you can find a property that maybe had a mom and pop owner that wasn't really keeping up with that trend. And all of a sudden that's an affordable housing project because in that city, the rents are are so far below where the quote unquote market is that you can be incentivized to go and buy that. And there's still upside. So like you said, I, I think it's a really big opportunity. And of course, if you look at our government, both state and federal, they're incented to create housing. At this point, we all know we're still at a massive housing deficit across the country and specifically in certain markets more than others. And so anything that they can do to incentivize folks to build or maintain affordable housing, they will do and they will subsidize. And so as an operator, as an investor, I would look for ways to capitalize on that because I think that is a very big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people just assume because you're doing one of those deals that you have to keep rents really low. And that's actually not the case, particularly if you have tiered levels that you can get pretty competitive rates and still qualify for affordable housing. Absolutely. And don't overlook the incentives, right? There are folks who are using a business plan where they buy a market rate apartment building and they convert it to affordable housing by lowering the rents. But what they're getting in exchange is a subsidy from the government, either a tax abatement or or some other thing that's making it, even though they're collecting less income, their expenses go way, way down, especially over like a 10-year hold and the deal pencils. So there are creative ways to use this to your advantage as an owner operator, especially of multifamily. I've got one last question. I'm going to put you on the spot. I, you know, this is the question I'm, I'm sure you get all the time. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you think, you know, six, 12 months from now, how's the lending environment going to look to you? Yeah. So this is a personal opinion. I don't want to speak on behalf of the yeah. company, but my personal opinion is rates continue to, to move, move higher. If I'm just looking at it just across the board, the macro Inflation is stickier than we thought, and it has taken even the severe rate hikes that we've seen, the last six from the Fed, they're still not cutting into the inflation metric. And so if they're serious about getting that back down to a baseline of 2%, we still have a long ways to go. And so 
I think what that means is, and, and Fed Chair Powell hinted at this and was, was quite hawkish in his remarks after this last rate hike, it's not so much how quickly we get there, but it's how long we stay there. And so what that indicated to me is that I think rates, they will go higher because I'm looking at the curve and that's the best indicator that we have. So in the short term, they'll go up. I think December will get another hike. I don't know whether it'll be 50 or 75, but that tells me that they will not start cutting rates until they see meaningful inflationary pressure relieved and also economic growth sort of recede. And so we, we haven't seen that either. You know, again, we saw payrolls grow this past print, which is interesting. So the economy still seems to be sort of chugging along and even slowly growing despite everything the Fed is doing to slow it down. And so that tells me that I think this is going to be a little bit longer than we all had anticipated. And so as I'm talking about interest rates in general and recommendations to clients, of course, it depends on the business plan, but I'm not bashful in recommending folks go long and take fixed rate financing at today's levels. Again, if you can get a good basis, you know the upside is rates go down. And if you have a flexible prepayment schedule, you can always refinance. The downside is rates continue to go up. And that's a scary place because you know in 1980, we didn't think rates could continue to go up and they kept going up till I think they peaked at what, 18, 19, 20%. And so I don't think we'll get there personally, unless things get way out of control and there's some more aggression with both Russia, Ukraine and North Korea. But I do think rates continue to go up. And the good part of that and the silver lining is the pain will be felt by sellers and landlords eventually. And I think expectations for purchase price and values will come down or at least in a meaningful way, meaning that people can transact in a way that there is sort of negative or neutral leverage on either side, right? It's neither a buyer's market nor a seller's market. They both agree that the price and the value is fair. And so I think once we achieve that equilibrium, even though rates will be at 6% on 10-year money, it will feel pretty normal. It will just be the new normal. And that's my prediction. I agree with you. I was definitely having a more optimistic view as well. And yeah, just way too much liquidity in this in this market. And it's all artificial, right? So this is so so much different than any other run-up or recession that we've ever had because we've never printed this much money before. And so it will be very interesting to see how it play out, but you know, if you can take a fixed rate and you can negotiate flexible prepayment on the back end, protect both sides, right? You don't want to lock yourself into defeasance or yield maintenance today because that's a sort of a one-way option, but you need to look at both sides and you need to protect both sides. As real estate investors and operators, you know we take risks in real estate. I don't think we should be taking interest rate risk. Well, thank you so much. Wealth of knowledge, Andrew. Tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you. Sure. WalkerDunlop.com. Our team is based in Los Angeles. Please feel free to reach out. Again, we, uh, we're experts in securing equity and debt for the acquisition, refinance, renovation, and construction of commercial real estate assets across the country. Gary can put my email and contact details in the post. And please find me on LinkedIn, Andrew Westling. Yeah, absolutely. And I highly recommend them. Thanks again, Andrew. This is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and review this podcast as it will help us grow our audience and reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website, breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and or fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week. 